Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is, Is There a Trump Doctrine at Home or Abroad? It was recorded on April 16th, 2019. Thank you very much. Um, it's kind of odd to say, is there a Trump doctrine when the man over there wrote it, H.R. McMaster. <laughs> but uh, I thought I would, before talking about a doctrine, because Trump is such a strange development in American political history, there's two or three roles that should guide us about discussing his doctrine or anything connected to the Trump administration. The first is things are so polarized that to say that you are for or against Trump or you want to, you're dispassionately on the border, it, it, it earns an emotional rather than a rational response. In the, just to take an example, in the five weeks uh, that that book was out, The Case for Trump, I was on a plane and somebody said, would I sign the book for Trump? He had recognized that he thought I was the author, and I said, sure, but he brought it out from underneath the seat, looked around and said, this is like a MAGA hat, it's toxic, and then I signed it and he put it back under the seat. <laughs> I went over to the, I used the Stanford studio, and if you do a late Fox, it's, it's closed, I mean, ours is closed, so I went over there and I was told if I wanted to go on Fox for the first time in my life, I had to write out what I was gonna say in advance at Stanford. I guess the Stanford logo and the Trump, it wasn't a good combination. So there, there's a polarization that makes it very hard to discuss. I, I've known people associated with the Weekly Standard and gotten along with them for years, but I didn't think that I would be called by one of them, Martin Heidegger writing for Trump Hitler in a review. So it's very hard to talk about Trump these days because there's an effort to suppress all expression and to demonize people who do in a way that's not conducive to a free society. Second thing about Trump is hard to calibrate is that when he says something, is that what we evaluate or what he does? And are they connected? <laughs> so some of you were appalled by Little Rocket Man and I have a bigger button than he does. The President of the United States says that. Some of you were appalled, on the other hand, that for 20 years, through a series of iterations of six-party talks, agreed-on framework, strategic patience, the net result was that he came into office, and in theory, we were told by some of the intelligence agencies that North Korea had ballistic missiles pointed at us at Stanford. That doesn't seem very juvenile, it doesn't seem very adult. And yet, whatever he did, they don't seem to be pointed, or at least they're not being tested to the same degree. So the question is, did it really matter he called Little Rocket Man when he got results so far? Or did he so damage the discourse that we'll remember that and it's unpresidential? Take NATO. The EU, for all practical purposes, I, I don't want to be a pessimist, but it's Germany. Germany, Germany, Germany. Germany has alienated Eastern Europe over immigration. Germany has alienated Southern Europe over financial problems and loans. Germany has alienated Britain over Brexit. 
Germany has alienated us over NATO contributions. When we complain that the 23 NATO countries do not meet their 2% investment in GDP, we're essentially talking about Germany, who has the largest economy, and it's about 1.3 or 1.4. When other countries see Germany doesn't do it, they won't do it. Of all the countries in the 27-member EU, which country has the least favorable view of the United States, both before and during the Trump? Germany. 52% only see America as positive. So when Trump comes in and says, NATO this and NATO that, and why is NATO there? What he's trying to do is use speech to force countries to raise their GDP over the objections of Germany or when he criticizes Germany about this gas deals. The question is, does that discourse damage NATO because he said things that threatened the, the existence of NATO, but he got results. The final thing that's difficult in talking about Trump is, <laughs> is he just blunder into success and he sits there with his Big Mac and his Hagen dazs and says, wow, let's try this, let's try this. <laughs> Or, as some of his supporters say, is he play four-dimensional chess? And it's kind of a cop-out to say in between, because I'll give you an example. On a stage like this, there were 16, you remember the Republican primary candidates? Much better than 2008, much better than 2012 field. Successful governor, Scott Walker, Christie, Successful senators, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, successful out outsiders, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina. Why couldn't any of them come up with a strategy that would flip those states in the Midwest and destroy the blue wall? 80% of the Trump doctrine was orthodox republicanism, strong defense, repeal Obamacare, more energy production, strict constructionist judges, you remember all of it, it wasn't that radical, but there were four or five things that were radical. China is not fated to take over the world. One American can produce three times GDP as three Chinese counterparts. We can stop it, it's asymmetrical. We hadn't really heard that. We'd heard isolated, we'd never heard the presidential candidates say that. The interior was not hollowed out because people took meth. People took meth because the jobs left. The jobs left not because energy was too expensive or the workforce was incompetent because of asymmetry in trade, make America great again. I'm not asking whether that was valid or true or logical or illogical, but what I'm asking is you had to play some type of chess to understand that that message might do to those areas of the country what other Republican messages had not done. And then when he added, I want sovereignty, we can't have sovereignty without outside an open border. I don't care what the Wall Street Journal and the Chamber of Commerce says, we're not gonna have any more illegal immigration, or we're gonna have, we're gonna look at trade as not free but fair. Somebody was playing some kind of chess because those four issues appealed to people, between four and six million of them that had not voted in prior elections. 2012, or had voted for Obama. I'm talking about the Tea Party, the Reagan Democrat, the silent majority, the Perot voter, whatever you want to call them. They came out and voted. It's incorrect to say, well, Trump only flipped Michigan by 80. Mitt Romney lost it by a quarter million. The point was that if he got all four to six million people out 
on a adaptation of a traditional Republican message, he could destroy the blue wall. If he destroyed the blue wall, he could win. That took some three-dimensional chess. And yet we don't give him any credit for that. So it's very hard then to talk about Trump because we, we're not sure what you can say, what you can't say, what is his juvenile talk, his tweets, to what degree they enhance or detract from the message. So we look at the record. If we look at the record overseas, what is the doctrine? Well, in 2007, General McMaster and his team called it um, principled realism. Some people in the vernacular call it Jacksonianism. It was a tripart idea. We're going to make America strong through economic prosperity, sovereignty. We're going to address terrorist threats. And we're going to focus where our energies are applied. Translated, I think that meant the world that we accept is not the world the way it is. And there's no reason to accept the world the way it is if it's not real. So the Iran deal, every, I think most people realize was a flawed deal and would eventually lead to uh, Iranian nuclear capability. But it surely in the short term enhanced uh, Iranian sponsorship of terror, so Trump got out of it. The Paris Climate Accord, whatever one thinks about it, the United States was more than meeting its obligations through the use of natural gas. And it seemed to be, if it were to be reified in its eventual form, it would transfer vast amounts of wealth from the non-West to the West to the non-West. He got out of it. I think anybody who's been on the Golan Heights realizes the Golan Heights is going to be parts of Israel. It's going to be part of Israel. Nobody's going to give up that strategic ground as it as happened before 67. I think everybody understands you go to Israel, Jerusalem is going to be the capital. He just did it. I think everybody realizes that in 1946, people walked across Eastern Europe back to Germany. The Sudetenland Germans, the East Prussians, they were refugees. By 1950, they were not refugees. I think everybody realized the Volga Germans were ethnically cleansed by Stalin. By 1950, they were not. Wherever they ended up, and it wasn't good, they were not refugees. I think everybody recognizes that 500,000 to a million Jews were ethnically cleansed from the Middle East between the formation of Israel and after the 67 war. Whatever they are today, they're not called refugees, and therefore we're not going to call the Palestinians who were displaced at the same time refugees. Everybody assumed that. Nobody dared say it. Trump more or less did it. So what I'm getting at is it's sort of he's looking at the world the way it is and say, this is the way it is. We're not going to go through any more pretense. And that can be good or bad. If you try to get a worldview, it's to focus American economic and political power on where it matters and try to avoid strategic engagements where we're not always able to trans translate tactical success on the battlefield into ultimate strategic resolution with this caveat in a cost-benefit matter. It seems like Trump values two things in foreign policy, or maybe everything, ratings and profit. If an engagement doesn't have high ratings and it doesn't feel as it's profitable, he doesn't want to go there. Bomb the S out of ISIS because you don't have to go on the ground and you can limit the cost-benefit liabilities. Put a better way, uh, it reminds me, I think General Mattis was, uh, I, I'd heard him use the term before, but it comes from uh, Plutarch's life of Sulla, and Plutarch wrote in Greek, but Sulla said it in Latin. He said, General Sulla, what's your theory of leadership abroad in, in the Mediterranean? He said, 
Non melior amicus, non nequior hostis. No better friend, no worse enemy. And I think that is characterized of the Trump doctrine. What he's saying to people like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, you are under the nuclear umbrella and we will come to your aid. And he's telling people like the Australians and the Canadians, you are our allies. But he's saying at the same time, that there's certain countries that are enemies. So we're not, as Secretary Rice said yesterday, if it's a choice between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Iran's an enemy and Saudi Arabia's a friend. If it's a choice between Turkey and Israel, Israel's a friend, Turkey's an enemy. If it's a choice between Venezuela and Cuba, they're enemies. And that it, it does provide the liability as it can be doctrinaire and dogmatic, but also provides strategic clarity. And the countries now understand that the United States can be a very good friend and protect them in a way that they weren't sure, say, the Asian pivot really had teeth, or they weren't sure in the Middle East whether with a wink and a nod we really might sort of kind of want Iran to be a bulwark against Israel and Saudi Arabia. There was that uncertainty. With Trump, they feel that if they go with Trump, at least he is likely to protect their interests. And for all of the charges of collusion with Russia, you can see that Trump, fairly or not, is considered Putin a threat. I say not because what he said, and they've been silly things what he said, but what he's done. He's upped sanctions. He's tried to restore some missile defense that was canceled over in that, as we saw in the hot mic conversation between Barack Obama and the Russian president. He encountered Russian mercenaries in Syria. He bombed over Russian objections in Syria. Uh, I don't think Obama did anything to it. Julian Assange. This administration is going to indict him. So if you actually look at what he's done and rather than what he said, he's been pretty tough on Russia, even though he believes, like Henry Kissinger, that Russia should be no better friend to China than they are to us, and China should be no better friend to Russia than they are to us. That was the essence of Cold War policy, that Russia's a valuable tool to balance China. So I think what he's trying to do is get a relationship after the Mueller investigation that we can use Russia to help, even though it's much weaker than China. So what I'm getting at is there's a strategic clarity and this principled realism is, whether we like it or not, there's certain limitations on American economic and military power. We're gonna beef up our economy and our military. We're gonna focus on areas in the vernacular that have good ratings and are profitable and we can't worry about other side areas, and we're gonna be very skeptical of multilateral trans-Pacific partnership, which I think in theory sounds great. Uh, the UN program to funnel money to the EU, the International Criminal Court. We, Trump believes that in this policy that they are all vulnerable to the weakest link, that these are multinational, transnational agencies that have undemocratic and illiberal regimes in it, and therefore those illiberal regimes will ultimately dictate how they act. If you look at, at home, how can you reduce what he's trying to do at home into a simple doctrine? I think I could. I mean, there's oil, oil production. He green-lighted Keystone. He's had problems implementing that, but opened Anwar open federal leasing. We're pumping three million barrels more oil per day than we did when he took office. The natural gas is still exploding. We're the largest producer of natural gas and oil. We may be the largest exporter within five years. 
Um, he went to West Virginia. Hillary Clinton was, went to West Virginia and said, I'm going to put you people out of, out of work. Sorry, Trump went to West Virginia and said, I love big, beautiful coal. It's a very different message. And we have 3% annualized, nearly 3% annualized GDP, record low Hispanic and black unemployment, 3.8% in some quarters of almost record low peacetime unemployment. What's the, what's the common denominator? And he's being tough on the border, trying to jawbone the entrance of illegal aliens or undocumented workers, whatever term you prefer. But one thing that has happened, the number of entrants that are coming across the border are not young men anymore. You can see it in my own community. We're not seeing young men from South America coming to work in the past. That was mostly, it's mostly families now for different reasons. And they, I think the, the dogma that sums up all that is jobs, jobs, jobs. Trump was a builder. Trump built things. He has this weird idea that if a man or a woman has a job, that's the essence of their identity that people say Mr. and Mrs. when you're employed and they don't when you're unemployed. When there's an, a, an employer like Trump and he has to hire somebody for a job, if there's a lot of Trumps and there's only one person, then people like Trump beg that worker and bid for his services. When there's a lot of workers asking Mr. Trump for a job, then he exploits them. I don't mean in you know, Marxist terms, but he has the leverage over him. So Trump's idea is, I'm going to get 3% economic growth. I'm going to kind of close the border so there's not going to be importation of cheap wages that undercut America. I'm going to try to get symmetrical, symmetrical trade deals. I'm going to try to produce more energy. I'm going to try to outproduce or be more economical in terms of even things like fertilizer or aluminum than is Asia or Europe because of our energy costs. We have a good, we have a good workforce in the Middle West, Middle West or the interior of the country. Jobs left not because they took opiates. They took opiates because jobs left. Reverse cause and effect. And jobs, jobs, jobs will solve. It's the magic thing that will solve our problem. If we have racial tensions, it's because we have too many unemployed inner city kids. And people have not given them respect. If an inner city kid goes to a workplace, instead of being neglected and say, we'd rather hire somebody from Mexico who works harder than you, maybe the employer says, I don't have any choice. Instead of saying, hey, you, I can't hire you, he might say, Mr. Smith, I really want to hire you. I need you. You're important. Or as a person put it to me in my hometown who was unemployed over the last eight years, he was a roofer on a United Healthcare Center. And I, I went to high school with him. He's in the 60s. He was up there still roofing. So I said, Gonzalo, how's it going? He said, how's it going? I start roofing, and then a guy pulls by in a semi and says, you want a job as a long-haul driver? And he said, now I'm tiling on weekends. I got all these guys down my neck. And for the first time, you should have seen him that he thought that he was somebody. Because the job, when you have a 3%, 3.7 unemployment rate, you really have zero unemployment. And then all of the tensions that have plagued this country Minimum wage. Do we pay minimum wage? Do we not pay minimum wage? Well, we're paying in, in Salma, California, or Fresno, California, above minimum wage. They're paying right now about $14 an hour to pick peaches. And you should see people who are, being, are going out to pick peaches. All of a sudden, they think they're craftsmen. And they always were craftsmen. <laughs> if anybody's picked peaches, and I did that most of my life in high school, 
you put a 60-pound pack on your back, and you go up a 14-foot ladder, and you pick, and then you climb all the way down the ladder, and you walk about an eighth of a mile to a big bend, and you pull a string, and then you go right back up, and you're covered with fuzz, and it's 110 in there. You're a craftsman to do that, but we never considered you were. So now we're going to Fresno State and Cal State Stanislaw and asking children, children, 18, 19 year olds, will you go out in the fields? We need you so much. And so he's created a, such a demand for labor, and I don't think that's an accident. I think he does believe, and I'd say that because not just calling coal big, beautiful coal, but when he went into the Midwest, he said our farmers and our vets and our workers, Romney never said that, McCain never said the word our. How could such an uncouth, brutal, callous person with such a checkered history show a degree of empathy that none of the Republican national candidates had showed? How could he be authentic? I mean, I saw him in Tulare and I said to this rancher, so he came to Tulare, California to raise money. Did he have the flannel shirt and the straw in his mouth? He said, no. <laughs> said, what did he look like? He said, he had the same orange skin, he had the hair, he had the Queen's accent, he had the suit. And then I started to look at YouTubes. Everywhere Hillary went south of Mex Mason Dixon, you all, I'm so tired to be here. Every time Barack Obama went in the inner city, every time John Kerry, he had this camouflage and duck outfit on. <laughs> Trump! <laughs> Trump had a suit and a Queen's accent wherever he was, and in a weird sort of way, that defies logic, that came across as both authentic and empathetic to working class people and explains why some Mexican-American kid would vote for him for the, since for the first time he feels that somebody created the conditions in which two or three or four employers want him to work. And if that is, happens, then all of the other things from minimum wage to race to gender, all of these psychodramas that we're fighting with are are partly a result because a lot of people don't feel that they are important. And when you give them a job and give them opportunities for a job, then they become the center of a family, a community, and people look up to them. They can lend money to somebody. They can intervene in a dispute and say, you know, I'm working here. I'm working here. This is what I learned on the job. The job is the essence, then, of a person's existence. And when you don't have jobs or you have a labor force that's not working to fool, it's a bad thing. Let me just finish by... Uh, speculating on what the, what the future holds because nobody knows what the Republican Party will do after Trump. It was kind of ironic that it had lost five out of six elections in the popular vote. Trump didn't win the popular vote either and it had not won 51% of an election since 1988. This is a time where it won over 1,100 offices under Obama at the state and local le level. So there was something deeply wrong at the national level that was not able to appeal to these states, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, that could flip them in a way that would see Republicans win. What happens after he's gone is something we, that I don't think you can go back to a traditional doctrinaire McCain-Romney uh, platform or attitude. And I would like to add also that there was something that was successful in his foreign and domestic policies that had to do with his personality. It was, maybe he's chemotherapy and he'll kill the cancer before he kills us. Maybe he's a pit bull that we cut and turn him in the long, whatever it was, it was not the Marcus of Queensbury rules. People wanted that. Maybe they've got it too much now and they wish they didn't, but the point is they wanted somebody to fight back, to grab that 
microphone from Candy Crawley in the second debate to say, Reverend Wright will be on the table. I don't care. He doesn't like Americans. He's anti-Semitic. He was Obama. That's what Trump would have done in 2008. What's the future? Let me just finish by saying we have to look at the past as historians. Two examples of people who won re-election, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and quite easily so in 96 and 2012. In 96, in the first midterm, Bill Clinton lost 52 seats, Obama lost 63. In the first midterm, Senate losses were respectively Clinton 8, Obama 6. Trump lost 39, it may have been 40 now, and he picked up two seats. He was polling right about 43 to 45, the real clear politics. If we go back to the Gallup poll at this time in their tenures, they were polling about 45, 46, 44, basically the same polls. And so the election, it seems to me, is with the advantages of incumbency and given the history of the midterms and their polling at this particular juncture seems to be Trump's to win or to lose. And given Trump, it could easily be to lose because he's capable of saying anything at any time, anywhere to anybody, as you know. So there's two other things to remember before we close, and that is every president runs not as a in a popularity contest. You're not gonna say, I like Trump or I don't like Trump. He either runs as a good candidate versus a better candidate or as a bad candidate versus a worse candidate. So Donald Trump, and this time we know as much as you can know about the guy, he has a record, economic and foreign policy record. You may not like it, but it's there. And it's not like 2016 when many people said, oh, on the never Trump side, he'll be liberal or the, the left will say he'll crash the economy or destroy the stock market. So he has a record, and that record will be juxtaposed to a different candidate. And that candidate will come out of a field that's now 20 people strong. And out of that 20 person strong, they are advancing a series of issues that the eventual nominee, if they're logical, and they do not want to go 1972 McGovern, 1984 Mondale, will try to escape because every single one of them do not poll 51%. I'm talking about abortion defined as infanticide, reparations, 70 to 90% upper rate income tax, wealth tax, abolish ICE, abolish electoral college, abolish student debt, free tuition, 16 year old voting, felons can vote, you know the whole thing. So they're gonna try to ev uh, evade that. The second problem they have is They've created this identity politics. You saw it manifest itself in the Kavanaugh hearings, the Covington kids, the Jussie Smollett psychodrama. And the message is that under Barack Obama, we got away from affirmative action and sort of compensatory for blacks. And then anybody who was not white was recalibrated diverse. And we added feminists were diverse and so were gays. And all of a sudden, the so-called white majority shrunk it was no longer 90-10, but it was 70-65-35, and that took a life on of its own. And so that party now is so wedded to the idea that of a toxic masculinity, a toxic white privilege, often ironically voiced by people who do have privilege against people who never had it. You know, I don't think a, a welder in Bakersfield has much white privilege, especially not from coming from the mouth of Cher or, or 
Stephen Colbert. But the point I'm making is that if that is the consistent ideology of the party, then why in the world are three white males now the, the front runners in that primary with Biden, Beto, and Bernie? I mean, that, that's a contradiction that they're going to have to settle. So what I'm getting at is Trump, whether he likes it or not, is going to be running in 2020 and saying, you may not like me. In fact, you'll probably say you don't like me. I don't even like myself sometimes if he's smart. And he's going to be arguing that whether you like me or not, I have a record, and that record suggests to you that I'm the only thing between you and socialism. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.